So Matthew chapter five, verse nine. So we are um, going through the Beatitudes right now. We're finishing it up tonight. We're finishing up the Beatitudes. And if you haven't had the pleasure of reading the Beatitudes, they're very fundamental for the Christian faith. They're very, that's why we kind of, we're starting off, we're kicking off the college season with the Beatitudes because they are so fundamental. They are so basic, right? Um, but in, in the simplicity, we find real depth, right? Um, Christianity is simply beautiful, right? It, it is so, it is so abstract and so beautiful and so, uh, just so unique. And, and there's so many different components to it, but there's a simplicity to just saying, Hey, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, right? There's, there's just such a simplicity to these where it's saying how to be blessed, right? And, and we spoke uh, previously in, in a couple weeks ago about being blessed, what it means to be blessed, right? Because we see all the time that hashtag blessed, right? That cliche that we, we only say ironically now, right? We only say blessed ironically. And, and we learn that blessed, as far as scripture is concerned and how, and as far as God is concerned, what blessed really means, and it's directly translated into, oh, how happy, Oh, how happy are those? Oh, how full of joy are those who experience blank? And it's interesting how in here, Jesus started off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who realize, oh, I got nothing going for me, right? And that seems so counterintuitive, but we were exposed to this truth that to be blessed, it extends far beyond temporal circumstance, right? Um, I looked up on Instagram, once again, super archaic, I know now, but I, I was looking up on Instagram, hashtag blessed, and there was a picture of a newborn baby and, and its parents, right? Um, a guy who just won his football game and is doing that Tim Tebow stupid bowing thing, right? That people only do for pictures, right? And, and then there was another, a couple just got engaged and there was another where the trendy beach photos where they're dancing and silhouetting in the, you know, in the sun, in the sunset, right? You know, and all of those and a girl flipping her hair up in the waters, you know, all, all that, right? Hashtag blessed. And, and we look at this and we look at people like this on our Instagram feed after we had just had a Netflix binge and are still in our pajamas and it's like 4 p.m., right? And, and, and we, we look at all of this, hashtag blessed, and we're like, Man, like, it seems like everyone else is blessed around me. But we learn that the blessing that Christ has to offer, it's enduring past circumstance. It's enduring even, not, not just when a baby is born, but when a baby is lost. You can still say, I'm blessed. Not just when uh, you get to have an amazing visit with your grandma, you know, in Idaho or wherever, but, but when she passes away. Or not just when someone gets engaged, but and also when there's a terrible, terrible divorce. That this, this concept of being blessed, it, it, is, it is in Christ, it is withstanding, it is steadfast because it is the blessedness of God, right? And so we're learning about this and now we get to Matthew chapter 5 verse 9 where we finish up the Beatitudes. Where we say here, Something weird happened with PowerPoint, but I have it up here for you. or read it on your Bibles. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Or daughters, just fill in the blank. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Bow your heads and pray with me.
Father, we understand that your word is enduring. We understand that your word brings life. Father, but we also understand that your word is challenging. Um, God, and if the word of God never rubs against our, our worldview, if it never um, rubs us the wrong way sometimes or sounds hard to handle, Lord, then we're probably reading it wrong because we are fallen creatures. We are um, always going after what's right for us. And so when we're exposed to something that is uh, hard, Father, I pray that you'd soften our hearts to receive it. Father, I pray that um, the words spoken tonight would be yours. God, and that we would not be so prideful to think that we can't learn anything from you tonight. Humble us, Jesus. Humble me, Lord. Anything that is said of me may it be lost and forgotten. But whatever is said of you, may it be etched upon our hearts for all of eternity. We love you, we praise you, and we give you this night. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. 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 All right, there we go. So uh, last Sunday, uh, I was preaching on Sunday morning um, on the concept of grace, right? And, and I, I started out by saying, and I've told you guys here on Sunday nights before, uh, that, that grace is incredibly dangerous, Grace is incredibly dangerous because the concept of an almighty God and us committing treason against him and then him saying, hey, I forgive you, that, that's very dangerous concept because it almost gives us license to say, well, if I could get away with that, I could get away with this, right? If God's going to forgive me for this, then of course he's going to forgive me for this. So why, why even try to be perfect, right? Why, why even try and attempt this whole Christian thing if Christ forgives me and if God forgives me anyways, why don't I just use that as a license to go my own way? Now, we don't say it explicitly, right? None of us, we, we know how to be good Christians, right? We know how to be good Christians in a sense that we know how to mask that. We know how to use different verbiage or saying, oh, all things are permissible, not, but not all things are profitable. Or, oh, well, God knows my heart, right? We, we like to say those things as we're giving ourselves license to disobey God, right? And so the concept of grace and God's eternal and steadfast forgiveness can be dangerous because it can make us spiral into this, uh, just lawlessness in a sense. And so grace is dangerous and we need to have a proper understanding of it. And I would say when it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. I would say that peacemaking or the concept of peace is also very dangerous, right? The concept of peace is incredibly, incredibly dangerous. I would argue guys that the pursuit of peace is probably what breeds so much conflict in the world. Different worldviews clashing and trying to have their form of peace, right? And the pursuit of peace will naturally breed conflict, right? So we need to know what peace means. We need to know, all right, when it says peacemakers, what the heck does that mean? Because I think peace causes violence. That's my opinion. You don't have to take it, but I, but I think the pursuit of peace in many different nations and, and between different countries, I, I think that while people are trying to pursue peace, their form of peace, their form of peace, I think that it naturally just breeds this violence. And so we as Christians, we as people who are seeking to pursue Christ, need to have a proper and a healthy understanding of what peace is. Now, the Webster's Dictionary defines peace as one of two things. Listen. Freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility, right? So that's the, that's the first definition, Webster's definition of peace, which is freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility, 
right? That nice peace that you have when, you know, you're just sitting down in the morning with a cup of coffee and your favorite show or your favorite book or whatever, whatever it may be for you, right? That, that, that quietness, that serenity, right? That peace. The second definition is freedom from or the cessation of war or violence. So the absence of violence. The absence of violence is the second definition of peace. So either this peaceful tranquility or this absence of violence. Now, in these working definitions of peace, we already have issues. We already have issues, and I'll, I'll, I'll describe why. So let's start with the first definition. Uh, freedom from disturbance, quiet, and tranquility. The way I get quiet um, and, and freedom from disturbance and tranquility is I like to go surf. I like to get out in the water, right? Right about when, you know, the sun has just risen because I don't want to get up too early, right? And, and I just, you know, when, when the clouds are still up and the fog's still there and the water's kind of cool, it's not too warm because when it's really warm, tons of people are there, right? And so I, I just like to go out in the water and I like it when there's not too many people there and the waves are like, you know, four to five foot overhead and no, um, just four to five feet and, you know, just nice waves that I can just be by myself. Right now, that's my definition of peace. Now, for some of you that aren't used to the ocean, you get out there and you feel like you are bombarded with these near death experiences as the ocean tries to swallow you into an abyss, right? Of darkness and despair, right? That's, that's, you know, some of you have been in the ocean and what may be peaceful and tranquil for me can be like this, oh, oh my gosh, moment for you. I almost died. I'm never going out there. Shark, oh, something touched my foot, right? I've taken some people out surfing and the second they touch seaweed, they're like, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm done, right? I'm done, right? So my concept of peace and tranquility may be very different different from your concept of peace or tranquility. And so for the second definition, freedom from cessation or war or violence, we see that this working definition doesn't work because the Middle East has a totally different concept of what peace looks like, huh? Than our concept. They have their worldview and they want to impose it on us, but we have our worldview and we want to impose it on them, right? So freedom from war for us means something totally different from freedom from war for them. Yeah. I'm not going to get too much into that, but, but we see that different working definitions of peace doesn't make sense. Cause if, if I go, you know, if you and I are hanging out, like, let's just have a peaceful time. That may be different. Like I want to do this. Well, I want to do this. And that could breed conflict between the two of us. Between nations, it's the same way. Well, this is how we want to attain peace. Oh, well, this is how we want to attain peace. And then conflict is bred from that, right? So the pursuit of peace, guys, will breed conflict. So peace among individuals and group of people, it's objective. It's totally objective. There's no absolute truth on what peace is when we're using these working definitions, But throughout scripture, right, if we want to know what Jesus means by blessed are the peacemakers, right, what it means to bring about peace, what is this peace that Christ is talking about? And throughout scripture, the peace of God is called shalom, shalom. And it's a word that signifies a state of national or personal harmony between two parties, 
national or personal harmony between two parties, between people, right? Two people, between nations, between ideologies, right? But the most important form of peace that is emphasized, the most important harmony is between God and man. Shalom. Harmony. Harmony. Working together. Codependence. Harmony between us, right, as individuals, us as nations, and between us and God. And it's a very different working definition, shalom, right? Because shalom, if it's just harmony between two parties, it's like, well, that's the, it's almost the same definition, absence of war, right? But that's, that's actually what we see functionally in scripture. That's not the thing. It's not what it is. We actually see in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, I have it up here for you, hopefully, Sam. So Ephesians chapter 2, oh, there we go. Um, says, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in peace of in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the father in essence guys in essence this verse right here this this passage this means that we We have made this wall of separation between us and God, okay? Since birth, we have been just after ourselves, right? We have been vehemently seeking our own glory, seeking our own way, seeking how we might attain uh, favor with people. We are continually about our own glory, and this has made a wall of separation between us and God. In pursuing our own sin, we have built a barrier that we are unable to break, even if we wanted to. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, it says that we are actually enemies of God before we come to Jesus. There's no moral neutrality with God. I hope you guys know that. There's no on the fence with him. You either reject him or you follow him. And, and, and Jesus especially, that's not just like a God of the Old Testament, you know, the meanie, and then Jesus the hippie comes back, right? That's, that, that, is, that is a line that is drawn in the sand by Jesus saying that you were either for me or you are against me. There's either accepting the gospel or rejecting the gospel. There's no moral neutrality that doesn't exist. And so we have built this barrier, but through the cross of Christ... And through the sacrifice that he has made for us, it says that he has broken down that middle wall of separation. That whatever walls we have made between us and God, that he has broken through that, that he has sought relationship with us despite us running away from him. And he has endured any sort of separation from God so that we wouldn't have to. So when Christ was on that cross, he endured that separation. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because in that moment, guys, the crucifixion was not the worst part of Jesus on the cross. I hope you guys know that. It wasn't that it just hurt. There's far worse deaths for the cause of God that have been made than crucifixion. There's people being skinned alive today. 
So there are far worse deaths than crucifixion. What made the crucifixion so horrid was that in that moment, eternal communion between Christ and God was separated. That eternal bond between the father and the son was severed. And he endured separation from God and the entire weight of your sin that so you and I would not have to. That cliche, but so true that Jesus on his cross has made a bridge between whatever separation there was between us and God. That is the gospel. He died so that we might experience shalom, peace between us and God. That is the crucifixion. That is the resurrection. That is the gospel. That we cannot get to God on our own. And that that Christianity isn't some mountain we climb through morality. It's not some, oh, I got to do good. One more ring up in the ladder closer to heaven. That's not it. It is that we, no matter how hard we try, cannot climb that mountain to God, cannot climb that ladder to God. So he decided to come down to us in the most humble of ways as a baby living in the stink and the muck of the universe and then enduring our sin on the cross. That is the gospel. That is the gospel. He died so that we can have shalom. The work of Christ on the cross has eliminated any sort of barrier that has kept us in harmony with God. And as a result of this, as a result of looking upon Christ's crucifixion and his self-sacrifice, we are to follow as Christ followers We are to follow in his example by breaking down walls of our own. That is why it is so important to understand the gospel before you attempt any sort of humanitarian efforts in the name of Christ. Before you attempt to, uh, you know, bridge any gaps in society or racial reconciliation, gender reconciliation, all of these things, it's very important to understand the gospel because... Christ's functioning definition of peace will work far greater than anybody else's. And I'll explain why. Because Christ built peace by self-sacrifice. Not trying to say, do you know what? My way is better. You need to get on my level. Or saying, well, you're kind of in this mess and I'll just pretend like it doesn't exist in hopes that we can have some sort of harmony. But Christ rather said, I will break down those walls and I'll be a peacemaker by dying for you, by laying down my life. Breaking down those walls is what it means to be a peacemaker. When it says, blessed are the peacemakers, that's, Christ really exemplified that. But it's really hard to be a peacemaker. Why? How did Christ break down those walls? By dying. It's hard to make peace because peace requires death to self. There's a difference between agreeing to disagree and peace, right? By, by, by making peace, we must die to ourselves. 
Right here in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it says this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, uh, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Peace between us and God is so important because in that relationship with him, we learn selflessness. We learn self-sacrificial love. Some of you, some of you have experienced such turmoil in relationships, whether it be romantic relationships or familial relationships, because there's this spirit of, I need to get something here. I may not have to win everything, but I at least need to win something, right? And Jesus, in a way of making peace, said, I am going to lay down my life. I will gain nothing. So to be a peacemaker as Jesus is a peacemaker means to pursue restored relationships through self-sacrifice and humble service. Through self-sacrifice and humble service. We, like Christ, are the initiators of peace. We don't wait for it to come to us. We are the initiators of peace. We are the initiators of reconciled relationships. We are the initiators of restored balance. We don't wait for it to come to us. There's, there's, a, political, uh, there's a political science uh, for any of you who are political science majors or, or taking courses right now, there's a term that you need to know in order to study any sort of international law, international peace, uh, international relations, any sort of that. It's called positive peace. It's called positive peace. And it's a term that is described as instead of putting all your money into winning a conflict... You should put all of your resources into building up the nation or the people group or the person you are in conflict with. So positive peace is is saying, well, instead of, you know, giving an example to the United States, to whatever one of the millions of countries we're in conflict with right now, uh, an an example would be, all right, instead of bombing them, we're going to go in and we're going to build schools. Because not coincidentally, the place where there's so much war and there's so much corruption is not coincidentally all the places that don't have access to clean water or good education. Not coincidental. So positive peace is putting your resources and putting your efforts into building the person you're in conflict up instead of tearing them down to your level or making them submit or bow to your authority. This works for personal relationships as well. So peace is not achieved by making people submit to your will, but coming up from behind them and loving them into peace with Jesus. No, obviously this example doesn't hold in every aspect, right? There is a time for war and there's a time for peace, yes? But it is still hard because we think that the world around us operates on this give and take scale. We, we, you know, we may not functionally say, we may, we, we may not say it outright and explicitly, but we functionally believe that there's a give and take in everything. 
right? That there's something, well, if I give this, I will receive this in return. If I give this much amount, I will receive this much amount in return. That if they want peace, they can come get it, right? I will give if they give, right? I'll reconcile if they reconcile. I'll apologize if they apologize first. None of you have ever done that before, right? I will apologize if they apologize first. If they want peace, they can come get it. We, 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 we believe that the world operates this way and we've learned that it doesn't. The gospel teaches us to give without condition or expectation of reciprocity. To give and not expect anything in return. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be best friends with every single person you argue with, right? But this better mean that the argument isn't resolved because you refuse to resolve it. The gospel and, and, and Jesus emphasizes this so much that he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, that even if you are in church, even if you are worshiping and you still have this crazy quarrel with a brother or sister, you should get up, leave church and go reconcile with them. Jesus thought it was that important to be the initiator of peace that he says, even if you're making a sacrifice in the temple, you should get up, go and reconcile. You should forgive them. You should ask forgiveness if need be. We must remember guys, we must remember that peace does not mean you have won the argument. It means that you and the one you are arguing with are both being one to Christ. Doesn't mean you've won any sort of quarrel. It means that you are both won over to Jesus. That is, that is the functioning definition of peace for us, of not winning anything, but being won over by Christ. And our reward for peacemaking is that we'll be called sons of God, that we'll be associated as children of God. We get to be a part of God's restorative work on earth. We get that title of being the ones that are going out, the initiators, the kickstarters of peace. We as Christians, we cannot be known as those people that cross their arms and say, well, well, I'll be willing to talk if they come to church first or they do this thing first or they make this decision first, then I'll be willing to talk. We can't do that because we claim to worship a God who said, I'm not going to wait for them to come to me. I'm going to come down to them. That's the God we worship. And if we are Christ followers, then we are going to emulate that by saying, I'm not going to wait for them to come to me. I'm going to go to them. And in this, guys, I had to deal with that. As I was reading, there are two people that I believe just burned me. And it's funny that the enemies for me as a pastor are never the world. They love me <laughs> for some reason. Like non-believers, when I talk to them, they're like, oh, that's super. But do you know, do you know who my enemies are? Congregants. Man, people tearing me down, tearing me apart, man, right? 
And, and, and that, that's different for you, right? But for me as a pastor, there's been Christians, there's been believers that have totally burned me. And I was face to face with this and could not finish until I texted both of them and said, hey, I really need to meet up this week or next week. I want to talk with you. Man, that, that was really hard. Because I've been waiting for them all this time to address the elephant in the room. And I said, that, that can't happen. I, as a Christian, need to be the initiator of peace. Guys, we get to be called children of God. If we are this, these bridge builders, these peacemakers, we will be known as children of God. I think that's a crazy title. It's so worthy of adoration and appreciation. But some people reject peace, right? Some people reject peace. It says right here in Romans chapter 12, it says, repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to what to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will keep burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We cannot simply allow this to be abstract. We cannot allow this to just be simply a good idea saying, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can't repay evil for evil. I can't repay gossip for gossip. I can't repay being mean and passive aggressive by being mean and passive aggressive. I can't repay this really gnarly text with another really gnarly text or this heated email with this heated email. We can't just allow us to make excuses saying, well, yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. Right? We can't allow that because the second we compromise, because it just says if your enemy is hungry, give them food. This is functioning positive peace. Saying instead of me retaliating with an equal or harsher punishment than you gave me, I am going to feed you. I'm going to care for you. And by so doing, this is kind of like the, this is kind of the benefit we get. By so doing, you will pour heaping coals of fire upon their head, right? They will hate it. That kill them with kindness cliche works. Oh my gosh, man. I remember having a very heated discussion um, with a brother of mine. And I just remember at one point he was just, he was, you know, I could tell I was feed, I was feeding, I was feeding the wrath more than I was feeding peace, right? I was just kind of, I was getting into it. I'm not much of an arguer, but every once in a while I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to tear into him, right? Give him the jug, you know, and just bite in and ah, sink my teeth. Get all pit bull on him, and 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 then something happened where I'm just like, oh, this will make him mad. This will make him really mad. Just be like, dude, you're right. <laughs> do you know what? I, do you know what? Remember when I said this, this, and this? I'm really sorry for that. 
Can I pray for you right now? <laughs> Guys, it's awesome. It's so, it's, and, and, and I love how God knows us, right? He knows that we need to be the initiators of peace, but we also need that kind of satisfaction knowing, right? That like we, we've kept, we've kept our, our worth almost, right? And God's saying this, listen, as much as it possibly depends on you, live peaceably with all. Meaning that, meaning that they can still reject whatever food you have to offer, whatever water you have to give them, but at least it's not your fault that there's war. As much as it depends on you. Now they can still be vehemently gossiping and slandering and talking ill about you as we're going to learn pretty soon. They could still be doing all of these things. But as much as it depends on us, the peacemakers, we must live peaceably with all. We must live peaceably with all. Now, I want to make something clear. Peacemaking does not involve sacrificing the truth. It does not mean sacrificing the truth of Jesus or telling anybody that they are right just to stop the argument. This does not mean you have to take abuse. This does not mean you have to take physical or verbal abuse. This does not mean you can't defend yourself. This does not mean that you just lay aside whatever slander they give about your Lord and just say, do you know what? You're totally right. Jesus does suck, right? It's, 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 not like, it's not like we could just lay over and sacrifice whatever truth we're standing for. But it means, guys, it means that in that whole realm, in that whole thing, that we have done our best to make sure that they are cared for and that they feel loved and that they feel heard. If they're abusing you, you go, tell one of us, tell the authorities, and that will be dealed with and justice will be served. So don't just lay in abuse if you're in abuse. And if they're physically abusing you, if they're um, verbally abusing you, you don't take that. You make sure you don't retaliate, but you alert someone if that's happening. I just need to make sure that you guys understand that. Pastor said, I just got to take it, right? It means that whatever evil or chaos you see in this world, you seek to overcome it with the goodness of Christ. Whatever craziness you see, whatever evil and disgusting things you see, you are seeking peace and you are seeking to overcome it with good. You need to see the world as one gigantic peace project. Stop living for ourselves and start living for the peace and the reconciliation of relationships and people groups. And that doesn't mean posting stuff on Facebook. It doesn't mean participating in a discussion in class and feel like you're moral because you've agreed with something nice somebody said. It means that you are going and you are initiating peace. You are doing something about it. That you have your hands actively involved in the reconciliation of this world. In service of the church, in service of the community around you. And I know that when I look at how much good the gospel can create in this world, because the gospel, think about this. If everyone acted like Jesus and everyone was just like, do you know what? Do you know what? 
well, I'm going to put my desire, my selfish desires aside. How are you doing? Imagine if everyone around you did that. Everybody. Imagine if cops did it, right? Imagine if all these different movements did it. Imagine if every single community just said, do you know what? I just remembered, duh, I mean, uh, Christ sacrificed himself for me, so I'm going to sacrifice myself for you, right? And so when, when I look at this and when I look at how much good the gospel can be for people and for communities and self-sacrificial love and servant leadership, it, when I think about that, I get stoked. I am like, yes, right? I, you know, and I, I just want to go about it. And I see the world is the great, this is the greatest peace project that the world has ever known. People are going to be encouraged. Relationships will be restored. The hungry will be fed and everyone will love me. The world is going to change and people are going to love me. Right? No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you really look at the gospel and and, and you see just how much good it can do for the world, everyone turning from their selfish desires and putting them aside and doing things for the glory of God and the benefit of their neighbors, you, you learn pretty quick that the world isn't as eager to get on board with this train as you are. You realize very, very fast that people aren't wanting to get on board the Jesus train here. In fact, they think your peacemaking project is radical and extremist. Uh, there's a very, very um, well-known and very, uh, it's peer-reviewed and, and, and very uh, steady and stable. Uh, it's called the Barna Group. And what they do, they do polling, they do research, and they do secular research, they do church research, they do many pew evaluations, and um, they, they just want to get a tone of what the world thinks right? And uh, they're very well known um, and very well researched. And um, they did a study on what the world, and the world meaning uh, a sample of over 20,000 people. So, you know, that's a pretty good sample to kind of get a tone, right, of different nations and different places in the country. So not just California, right, but just different places all throughout the country. And they wanted to know what the world thought was extremist. People are considered extremist if they do any of the following things. This is, this is just like if someone's like, hey, um, if somebody does this, would you call them an extremist, radical, um, religious zealot, right? And people are like, yeah. Attempts to convert others to their faith. Quit a good paying job to pursue mission work in another country. Wait until marriage to have sex regularly donate money to their religious community by tithing, reading the Bible silently in public, attend church on a weekly basis, volunteer to help people in need. That last one was actually considered extremist by the majority of the people that they polled. If you are in any of these categories, you are now a religious extremist to the world. 
sorry. (laughs) Even the most basic of Christian practices, like reading the Bible silently in public, is considered extremist. Attending church on a weekly basis is considered extremist. Some of you are totally extremist. Some of you are not extremist at all. (laughs) But even the most basic of Christian practices, the world says, you're crazy town, right? You are insane. You mean you give your hard-earned money to that organization? And, And what blew my mind is that volunteering to help people in need was one of those. (laughs) This is the pulse of our society. This is what they are thinking. This is the stream. This is the pattern of our society right now. This is the culture we live in. And Jesus says, blessed are you. Because do you know what? They're going to persecute you for doing any of these things, let alone in the, guys, He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. They're going to persecute you if you decide to act like Jesus. If you decide to pursue peace. Peace does not mean everyone agrees with you. It means at whatever cost, you are going to build up the community around you. And they killed Jesus for it. So why would they be any more gentle on us? We are lucky enough to live in a Christian nation, right? We're lucky enough to live in a nation that may outwardly say, hey, those people are weird, but at least they're not putting us in chains or worse, right? We know in different parts of the country, you even speak the name of Christ and your hands are chopped off, right? But let let's make something clear on what persecution is because a lot of us will experience persecution for totally warranted reasons, right? And Peter says this, he says, but let no one suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Just notice how Peter just slid that in, right? He's like murderer, thief, evildoer, or meddler. You know what meddler is translated as? Like someone who's a busybody and gossip, right? Someone who's just trying to get into other people's business and judge them for it. I love how Peter mentions that. That's totally, Peter's totally a pastor, right? <laughs> he puts that on the same, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him be ashamed, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, so let something be clear. If you're being annoying and you're being persecuted for it, duh, If you're being annoying, yeah, people are going to tell you to shut up. And you should. I don't know if any, I don't know if any of you had like this dad. I didn't have this dad, but like I've seen these dads, right? Where you're out, you're out to dinner and stuff. And you know, the waiter's pouring you water and he's like, you know, uh, you know, Jesus is the living water and you can accept him right now if you want. Right. And you're like, dad, I just want to have dinner, right? 
right? Annoying, right? Annoying stuff, right? Being annoying and a meddler and just like totally breaking social contract sometimes, you know, that's warranted persecution, isn't it? That's okay. You should just, you should be like, hey, maybe I was being a little, maybe I was being a little off out there. You know, you should accept that and be like, all right, you're right. I'm annoying. I'll shut up, right? But it says, if, if you are being persecuted to glorify God, if you're being persecuted by acting like Jesus, don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you. Guys, if you're acting like Jesus, they're going to treat you like Jesus. They will treat you like Jesus. People weren't kind to him. They resisted what he was doing. The world is not just going to stop being selfish and bitter because you tell it to, right? But blessed are those, happy are those who are persecuted in the name of Jesus because that means that they're being peacemakers. If you have, ever been per- if you have never been persecuted for your faith, you must ask the question, am I acting like Jesus? Because if you are being like Jesus, they will persecute you. If you are extending your reach outside of the Christian bubble a little bit and going into the world and saying, do you know what? I'm going I'm to serve these people, but then I'm going to tell them about the gospel. They will persecute you. And notice, guys, how Jesus mentions only words. He doesn't say crucifixion. He doesn't say being stoned. That's what the apostles went through. The apostles were beheaded and, 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 and they were crucified upside down. They were boiled alive. Like the apostles went through some crazy stuff. And there's Christians today going through some crazy stuff. But notice how Jesus says words when they use words against you, when they utter things against you, because you and I both know, you and I both know, we all know that words have this profound and deep impact on our lives. Some of you are still recovering from the damage that was done to you by your parents, by a boyfriend or girlfriend. Some of you are still recovering from the deep scarring that people done because they have used words against you. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that words create life or they destroy it. but you need to understand something. They aren't persecuting you. They're persecuting Christ. And do you know how I know they're persecuting Christ? Because if you did all the things that Christians do, if you built hospitals, sought restored relationships, exercised certain leadership in your workplace, if you did all of these things, if you did all these awesome things like start orphanages and volunteer in soup kitchens, and if you did all of these things and didn't mention Jesus' name at all, they would praise you. But the second you mention Christ, even though you've done all of those great things, they hate you. That's how you know they're persecuting Christ and not you. Because the second Christ comes into that equation, guys, that means that He is the reason you're doing that. And that means in order for them to get to where you are, they actually have to talk to God. And they're terrified of that. 
people are so scared of God. They mask it as hate or um, just not being interested. But they're afraid of him. Some of you have lived in that fear of God. You called it just, oh, I'm just doing my own thing for a while. I kind of fell away for a while, just, you know, coming in and out of church. God and I are still okay. You know, I pray to him every once in a while. But we're really scared of God because we know that if we get close to him, he'll change us. We know that if we actually pursue him, we actually dive into his word, that he'll ask us to change. And even though we know in the depth of our hearts that that will be so good for us, we love our sin more than we love to be free. They're rejecting him. And guys, my ego is so fragile. My ego is so fragile that sometimes my need to be liked takes over. And unintentionally, I act as though I don't even know Jesus. Sometimes it's not this blatant, I need to deny Jesus right now. That's usually not it, huh? That's usually not what it's like. It's much more subtle than that, huh? It's this, yeah, I mean, I could be known as a good person, but, you know, I don't want to bring Jesus into it and make it awkward. Because I want people to like me. At the end of it all, I can't tell you how to be brave. I can't tell you how to be an awesome peacemaker. That's something that you have to discover between you and God. That's something that you have to go and you have to pursue Christ and you have to, you know, you have to endeavor in this relationship with him. And he has to show you how you and your context can be a peacemaker. I can't tell you how to love him. At the end of it all, we're not going to endure persecution unless we know the answer to this question. Is Christ enough? Is Jesus enough for us? If I go out as a peacemaker and the entire world rejects me, but I still have Christ, is that enough? If I go into my friend group and I seek to restore this drama and this gossip instead of being a part of the problem and they reject me for it, is that going to be okay? Am I going to be okay because I still have Christ? That is the question we need to be asking ourselves. Not, oh, all right, so what kind of project can I be a part of? What kind of community service can I do that won't only be awesome for the gospel, but it'll look great on a resume, right? We, you know, all of this stuff and all of these things. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. At the end of the day, you will not be able to endure the words that they give you if you do not see Jesus as worth it. I cannot convince you to endure persecution unless you are passionately in love with Jesus. Our enjoyment of him must transcend a fear of being made fun of, of being rejected, of people leaving us. I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with men and women who are in a relationship with someone who does not share their faith. And their biggest fear is they'll reject me if I tell them about Jesus. They'll reject me if I start following Jesus. Is that worth it? Because obviously you love them more than you love him. We have to come face to face with this. I have to come face to face with this because do you know what? I, I, go, I go into the world just like you do. 
I have to go and face classmates. I have to go and face all of these things. I have to go and face the community that I'm trying to serve. I have to go and face, uh, guys, I'm, I'm a member of the CPC, right? I'm like an advocate for, a, you know, for, pro li- for the pro-life movement. Imagine that mess. I have to ask myself, is Christ worth it? Worth the names? Worth the slander? If he's not, he's not. All right? But we have to come to the altar tonight, and we have to ask ourselves those questions. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and we're going to close, and I'm going to pray for us. And I want us to think soberly about all this. I want us to look at Jesus and go either way, saying to him, yes, Lord, or no, Lord. Because as I said, there's no neutral ground here. There's no maybe later, Lord. There's no after I graduate, Lord. There's no once I get married, Lord. It's now, Lord, whatever it takes, Lord. And for those of you that have not experienced the gospel, if you've not come face to face with Jesus in the way that I'm describing, I, I want to invite you to come tonight. I want, you to, I want to invite you into that life. And I'm not going to do some crazy summer camp altar call for you, okay? I'm not that guy. I'm not that pastor. I love pastors like that. That's not me. I'm going to tell you something. If you want Jesus... You ask for him. If you want Christ, accept him. Follow him. And so for those of you that haven't heard the gospel, it's, it's as simple as this, that God has created us to be in unity with him and to have a relationship with him and to be with him and to have this love relationship with him. But here's the thing about love relationships. Uh, there needs to be free will involved. Right? It's the, it's, I say this, it's the difference between a date and a kidnapping, right? Free will is the difference between a date and a kidnapping, right? A marriage and a hostage situation, right? That's the difference. So God wants to be in relationship with you. God desires to be in a loving, loving relationship with you. But he's given us free will because there's no love without it. And we have used our free will to go and pursue our own kingdom, our own desires, whatever. We've worshiped creation instead of its creator. We've worshiped our jobs instead of the one who has given us the job. We've worshiped money instead of the one who has created the economy. We have worshiped relationships rather than the one who has created relationships. We've worshiped pornography instead of the one who gives us true pleasure. We have worshiped all of these things. We have worshiped drugs. We have worshiped alcohol. We've worshiped whatever we decide is our God instead of him. And God says, I still want you. And you're so far away from me that you won't be able to get to me by yourself. So I'm going to die for you. And on that cross, I'm going to take every single sin you've ever committed, all that baggage that people have done to you or that you have done to me. I'm going to take that and I'm going to endure that on the cross and I'm going to put it in the grave and it's going to stay there. And I'm going to rise again, proving that death doesn't have power over me. So if you believe in me and if you want a relationship with me, just take it, my child. I will comfort you. I will walk with you. I will be with you. And we have but just accept that.
And that's, that's what communion is, guys. Communion, the bread, represents that body that was broken for you. When Christ hung there on the cross, he was broken and he was shattered. And on that cross, he killed your sin as well. And that blood, it, it, it's a symbol of the covenant, right? It's, it, it's a symbol of take my life because blood gives us life. It's, it's, it's what gives us life. And so Jesus, the, the juice just represents his blood saying, take my life as well. Be a part of my life. Be a part of me. Be with me. And so by taking communion, we're accepting that. We're saying, yes, God, I want to be with you. And so if you'll bow your heads with me, we're going to pray and then we're going to enter into a time of worship. And if you want to accept Jesus and you want to accept this new life that he has for you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to stand up so everyone can clap for you. What I'm going to ask is that you would pray with me either in the silence of your heart or out loud and that you would come and take communion. Do not take communion if you do not accept this gift. If you've accepted it before, this is just a normal thing we do at church. We take communion to remember. So that's your choice to make if you want to take it. But we're going to pray and we're going to worship and we're going to come face to face with the Christ who wants to empower us to be peacemakers. Amen. So pray with me if you desire this, because I know I do. God, Yahweh, I know that you are the creator of all things. I know that you have created me to be in a loving relationship with you and that I have have walked away from you. I've ran away from you. Lord, I know that what you've done on the cross has made me able to come back to you. So I pray that you would take me back in your loving embrace. Jesus, I know that you've died for me and that you've risen again for me. Lord, take my life. I want to be yours and I want to be a peacemaker. I want to be a part of the solution to all the war and all the evil in this world. And not contribute to the problem through selfishness. Help me start this year and start my life in a correct way. By walking side by side with my God. And having him guide me all along the way. I love you Jesus. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.